The scripture for this morning is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, College Park. It's just a great time to be a Christian, isn't it? Holiday season, just nothing like it. Thanks for being here today. We're going to get started on the subject of the virgin birth. It's great to be in the Lord's house today. Let's um, take a look at his word. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we um, come today expectantly looking forward to uh, what it is that you're going to say to us uh, through your word today. And we today want an encounter with you, want to be able to hear and listen from your word to receive hope, encouragement, conviction, whatever it is that we need. Lord, you know what we need. And so we've come today um, with people, hopefully, who have ready hearts, who have ears ready to listen Eyes that want to see things in the text. And mostly, though, Jesus, we want to behold you today. We want to see you. Uh, In this of all of the press of this season, uh, we want to be able to be reminded of the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. And so help us to see that, to hear that, and to feel that today. In your name, we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. As I'm sure you're well aware, the Bible is made up of two testaments. The Old Testament and the... New Testament, right? And unless you have a study Bible, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the book of Malachi ends and the book of Matthew begins, is maybe a page. But what you may not know is that the gap, historically, between Malachi and Matthew is about 400 years. 400 years, in fact, when God was virtually silent 400 years that are incredibly important in the history of Israel. Um, During this particular time period, um, Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians prior to this time of silence, prior to this intertestamental period. They then began to be allowed to return to the land of Israel in remnants, small groups of people, began to to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, began to um, establish um, worship again um, during this particular time. And, And as a result of their presence and the political instability of the world, they were ruled during these 400 years by four different 
foreign powers. They were ruled by the Persians, by the Egyptians, by the Syrians, and then the Romans. And, and this time period, called the Intertestamental Period, or the um, Second Temple Judaism, is a really important moment in Jewish history. In fact, there's only one little sliver of time during this intertestamental period, a hundred years, when the Jewish people ruled themselves. It happened because of an old priest who had five sons, and one of his sons, named Judas Maccabeus, led a revolt and threw off the Syrians from um, the, uh, the land of Israel. And in a particular beautiful moment in 164 um, B.C., he cleansed the temple and they reestablished daily sacrifices in the temple. This was an unbelievable moment in their history. And you know that the Jewish people celebrate that moment in their history during this time period. It's called Hanukkah. You see, this time period, this, this revolt was a really important moment in their history. And this 400 years is a really significant context for what we're going to talk about today because during this particular season in their history god is not speaking there's no prophet there's no oracle and this is for 400 years just just to give you a sense of that that's you your father your father's father and your father's father Or your great-grandfather. To put it in American history, 400 years ago was the Mayflower Compact. It's, It's when the pilgrims landed on the shores of the United States. It's when Jamestown was founded. It's when Roger Williams founded Rhode Island. This moment, this is a long time, 400 years, where there is relative, absolute, the sense that God has, in effect, left His people. Ezekiel chapter 10 gave a promise, and it was this. When God's glory departed out of the temple before the Babylonian captivity, God made this promise, and it was this. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And this text begs the question, when? When is this going to happen? Because the people of Israel are coming back into their land. They they have a temple. They have scribes. They have sacrifices. But there's, there's no presence of God. Because in the Old Testament, when you built a tabernacle, and guess what? God shows up, smoke fills the the tabernacle. When when Solomon built the temple, God descended again, smoke filled, and now here they are again, the people of God, in the land of God, with a temple of God, with priests of God. But guess what? There's no presence. No word, no no oracle. It, It seems as though God is gone. And right at the darkest moment when you'd think that God had forgotten His people, The silence of this moment is shattered with the virgin birth. The overshadowing picture now is not of the glory of God coming to a temple or the shadow of God descending on a building, but instead it comes in the words, the glory of God will overshadow you. Now, God's presence is manifest not in a building, but instead in a womb. And it's no wonder that John, reflecting on this, said... We beheld His glory, the glory of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. 
So what happens in this virgin birth is God breaks the silence. He begins to speak in powerful and miraculous ways. So there are so many things for us to, to look at today in regards to this subject of the virgin birth. Just by way of an outline, we're going to look at the setting, the announcement, the solution of the virgin birth, and then just the message. What is it about this birth that's so important? And what is, what is God saying through this important moment where it breaks the silence of 400 years? Well, first notice here our setting. The, the text begins with an overview of the situation in which God dramatically intervenes and he begins to speak. The text begins, tells us that this takes place six months Later, where it's six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth is a relative of Mary. She's the wife of Zechariah, who was a priest who happened to be, according to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, in the temple performing his duties when an angel showed up. And he told me he was going to bear a son, and, and Zechariah argued with him, and so God shut his mouth for the duration of the pregnancy. And that's just a little newsflash for you. If an angel shows up, don't argue with it, okay? Just just like, okay, whatever you say, I'm good. It doesn't turn out good when you argue um, with an angel. So Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren. They're beyond the age of bearing children, and God shows up, and now a beautiful thing has happened. The, the angel's name is Gabriel. It's the same messenger, God's special messenger, by the way, who was sent to Zechariah, who's also sent to Mary. He's dispatched to a city called Nazareth, which is a, a nondescript city about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem, uh, a place that's viewed rather as a non-prestigious place to grow up, kind of the other side of the tracks, the kind of place that you think, can anything good come out of there? You think like, I don't know, Gary, Indiana, think, um, I don't know, Evansville, think, um, Brownsburg, um, I, I don't know. Okay, 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 okay. Zionsville. Okay, let's just go there, all right? So, I, you know, whatever. So just the kind of place that you defend and you go, come on, I came from there. Well, that's, that's what Nazareth was like. A place you think, well, can anything really, is anything really going on there? That's all free. The angel um, is sent, however, to an unmarried and chaste woman, the text says, who is betrothed. That means that she's legally bound to a man. We'll find out his name in a moment. That she's, they're awaiting their wedding day, but she's legally bound to him. The text then says that the man's name is Joseph. And then it says this, he is of the house of David. And that's really important because there's a, a prophecy, a promise, if you will, uh, that God gave to David, the king of Israel, the, the greatest king of Israel, in Second uh, Samuel 7, that uh, someone from his line would always rule Israel. And so it's really important that Joseph is of this line because Jesus will be part of that fulfillment of that Davidic covenant and that Davidic promise. And then finally we learn that the virgin's name is Mary. So that's the setting, and all of that to say that it's been 400 years since God has spoken directly to his people. They're living in the promised land, but they're under occupied foreign powers. They have a physical temple, but there's no sense of God's presence. They are God's people, but there is really no sense of hope. They're going through the motions, and for four generations, God hasn't shown up. The virgin birth, however, breaks the silence of those 400 years. Verse 28 says that the angel Gabriel came to Mary with a greeting and information that at first were a bit confusing and alarming to her. Verse 28 says that the angel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is the kind of greeting that 
when someone says something to you, you're like, well, what does this really mean? The angel calls her favored one, which means that she was the recipient of God's unmerited favor. The the word means that someone has received grace freely. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 1.6, where Paul, describing salvation, says, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us, that's the same word, in the one whom He loves. So the idea of favored is you've been freely given grace. So the, the, even the nuance of, the, of the, the, the voice and the tense of the word means that Mary is already a recipient of the, that grace. She just doesn't even understand the full ramifications of it. So God began pouring out grace on her far before she ever knew that she was the recipient of God's grace. The angel's statement, though, is not very clear to her. It says that she was greatly troubled at the saying. She's agitated or bothered or confused. And this this statement by the angel just, she doesn't know what it means. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This, this, there could be a lot of agendas behind that kind of statement. Sort of like those folks that come up on your driveway in the summer and they, Hey, how you doing? Here's a candle for you. And you're like, well, what's this? People don't walk around the city just handing out candles for free. There's usually a loaded agenda. Oh, you want to sell me a vacuum? I gotcha. Or let me come in and clean just this one part of your house. You ever done that before? And they're like, there's six hours. You're like, hey, get out of here, right? I buy it so you leave. So those things, um, when someone, you know, offers you something or makes a statement that seems a little over the top, it might engender a little bit of suspicion. And that this is what happens for Mary here. She tries to discern, verse 29, what kind of greeting this might be. So the angel apparently notices Mary's guardedness. Look at verse 30. He says to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. Again, he repeats it, for you have found favor with God. Now, it's interesting that the the angel says, don't be afraid, because this is often what um, angels tell people when they encounter human beings face to face. Uh, Same thing that the angel said to Zechariah. Same thing that the um, shepherds heard from the angel when they saw him in the sky. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You found favor with God. Now, some of you might know of a phrase or a theological concept called immaculate conception. Uh, That's a view espoused by the Catholic Church that views Mary as someone who is absolutely sinless, and therefore this phrase of having found favor um, not only indicates that God blessed her, but in order for her to be blessed by God, she had to be absolutely sinless. That's part of the doctrinal nuance of what the virgin birth is or even what it isn't. Now, our view is that, no, Mary wasn't sinless, but rather she received favor despite her sinful condition. To show you this, let me just give you an illustration. Pope Pius IX, 1854, wrote this. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved, immune from all stain of original sin. Now, I just want to explain something to you, why why the Catholic Church would have this particular view of the virgin birth, in particular of this, um, this notion of Mary. It's because of a major doctrinal divide, a, a, a difference that, that's really important. 
The Catholic Church believes that Mary had to be righteous in order to obtain favor with God. In other words, in order for her to receive the favor of God, she had to first be righteous. Therefore, that makes perfect sense why Immaculate Conception would fit their theological grid. Because before she can receive divine favor, she has to be cleaned up. She has to be sinless. And, and that's why they would have this view, even though there's no... No, no place in the entire Bible that you could point to as a proof of that particular view. And, and the difference is colossal. From an evangelical or Protestant perspective, uh, Mary received favor despite her unrighteousness. So the question is this, does, is grace a gift that comes by imputed righteousness? Meaning, does grace come by virtue of God saying you're righteous even though you're not? Or does grace come because you've achieved righteousness, you've cleaned yourself up, even God helping you cleaning yourself up, and then you receive divine favor? Does one receive grace because of your righteousness? Or does one receive grace that produces righteousness by virtue of God acting on your own heart? The reason why this is important is because central to the doctrine of grace and central to the doctrine of salvation is this notion of receiving favor even while you are yet a sinner. So it's not that God cleans you up to make you a recipient of His grace. No, the divine scandal of grace is that even while you were a sinner, God extended grace to you. And it's it's even Mary, even while she's a sinner, she has the Holy Son of God within her womb is a beautiful picture of God's sovereign intervention, His beautiful grace, and the way in which He intervenes in the midst of our sinfulness, not cleaning us up so that we are worthy of His favor. What the angel announces in verse 31 then is the most important news in terms of its intervention in human history. Verse 31 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This this is hinted at in Isaiah chapter 7, where God talked about the fact that a virgin would conceive, and the name of the child in that prophecy would be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Think temple, think tabernacle. God's with us. God's with us. Now there's a temple. God isn't with us. Insert virgin birth. Guess what? God's with us. But He's with us not in a tabernacle, not in a temple. He's not with us in a fire or a smoke. He's not with us in these senses. No, now He's with us in the presence of His own Son. Such that Luke tells us that his name would be Jesus. And the name Jesus literally means the Lord is salvation. Matthew's account even goes further. Matthew explaining it that he was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what you see now is the turn from the Old Testament now to the New, where the focus is not just on external forces that are threatening the people of God. Now here's the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 10, where the real problem is not the forces outside of Israel, it's the sin within the hearts of men and women who are in the nation of Israel. And it is this Savior who will be God with us, who will save people from the greatest threat of their life, which is the threat of their own dark heart. The angel then goes on to explain four additional descriptions. It says that he will be great. Greek word there is megas, megas, or mega. 
It means something unusual, something extraordinary, something amazing, something extreme, something central and preeminent and sovereign. If you know Jesus, you know He is all that. He will be be called the Son of the Most High. Literally it reads, He will be Son of Highest. It's a title that not only describes His position, but also could be used as a name. In the same way that the word majesty in England could be used not only to describe something that is beautiful or powerful, but also could be a name given to someone of the royal family. Your majesty. Next we see that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Meaning that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. Specifically the promise that someday somebody would reign on this throne who would be part of David's line. And then it says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And what this angel says is there's coming this this Jesus who is going to reign and rule. And he will bring things back to the way that they need to be. And if you have any Jewish friends, you know, even today when Jewish people greet one another, what do they say? They say, Shalom, peace, the longing of the peace that was in the Garden of Eden. And it is Jesus who is the one who finally brings that peace, restoring creation back to what it was before the presence of sin. What is Jesus? Jesus is the intervention of God into the world. He is the singular message that breaks the silence of 400 years. He's the fulfillment of everything promised. He becomes the greatest disclosure of God to mankind. He speaks for God in a whole new way. Now, God doesn't speak through a prophet on earth, doesn't speak through an oracle or a vision, but now He speaks in a more powerful way with the combination of the divine and the human and this Son. And His Son now becomes the greatest disclosure of who God is that mankind has ever seen. The book of Hebrews, reflecting on this, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. You see, this is why, as a church, we are infatuated with Jesus. We love His word. And we love what God does, we love missions, we love the things that God does, but at the end of the day, what we really love and what we're really all about and the thing we want you to know more more than anything else and the person I want you to fall in love with more than anyone else is Jesus. Why? Because He is the exact imprint of His nature. It's Christ. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what righteousness is like? You want to know what it is to, to really be holy? Then you need to know what Jesus is like. Or as Moses is described in the book of Hebrews 11 as seeing Him who is invisible. Part of my aim on Sundays is to help you see what you can't see, but to see it with your heart so that you'll be in love with this Jesus who is the exact imprint of His nature, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, and who after making purifications, He sits down. You know what that means? It's done. It's finished. It's a beautiful picture of the power, the glory, the majesty of this God-man. It is this God-man, incidentally, who in the virgin birth 
makes it possible for your sins to be forgiven. He sits down. That, that means that he made sacrifice for sins and so it's completed. Therefore, it means that he's the only one that can really create a scenario for you to be forgiven. Somebody has to pay for your sins. Somebody has to. Either you pay or Christ pays. You, you pay in eternal torment in hell or Christ pays by virtue of his death. And the beauty of the gospel is that God has made a way for sinners to be forgiven. And they do that by receiving Christ such that God takes Christ's death and counts it to you. And he takes your sin and he applies it to Christ's account. This is the scandal of grace. And it begins to become clear in the virgin birth. Mary is amazed at this statement, the statement of you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and will call his name Jesus. And so she says, how how can this be? She's, she's not married, so this promise doesn't make any sense to her. She's not doubting, but how, how is this possible? And, and to answer that question, the the angel increases the mystery and awe here by telling her that God is going to put a child in her womb. It's an amazing thing to say, and it's a remarkable display of God's power. And to back that up and to make that point even more clear, the angel tells her that, Behold, your Elizabeth in her old age has conceived the son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And we don't have time to unpack that, that whole sentence, but let me just, just have you see two things here. First, he says that this, this relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, I love this because she's probably the first woman who just loved the word old, right? <laughs> so here's this old woman who's pregnant. So let's, how old do you think Elizabeth is? Take a guess. How old do you think? John, how old do you think she is? 120. <laughs> How old do you think she is, Jermaine? 80. 80? Okay. So, if you're 80, Jermaine just called you old. Just so you know, ladies. Okay? So, <laughs> we'll just... We'll... Seasoned. Okay, seasoned. Right. He's trying to get out now, but that's he's stuck. So, I got him in. He can't get out. So, all right. So, let's just imagine, okay? So, if you're 80 years old, and you know what happens sometimes when you get when you get older? You begin to embrace the fact that, that, that you're an older person. And here is this woman. Can you imagine? 80 years old, and she's walking around, and she's six-month pregnant. I can only imagine that she would say to people, can you believe it? I'm 80 years old, and look at me. I, there's joy in that, isn't there? And then notice what else it says. Who was called barren. Just, you know what happens in that moment? God takes all of her shame away. He does something miraculous that makes her embrace a word that would have been shameful, and then he actually takes the word that she must have hated, and he takes it away. And you know, that's the beautiful thing that God does all the time. He takes your shame away. Such a beautiful picture of God's grace. This old woman who now has a child within her, and all her shame is gone. Such a beautiful picture of what God, what God does in so many ways. Then, then notice what happens next, verse 35. The angel says here specifically, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's a, an important 
word to note. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. So here's what happens in the virgin birth. It is that the child is born of supernatural means, born to a sinful woman, and God sovereignly and supernaturally, we don't know how all this works, protected Christ in His sinlessness, so that when He is born, He's fully God and fully man, He's fully divine at the same time. Absolutely sinless and yet also fully the son of Mary. And this virgin birth creates the possibility of a son who is both human and sinless and divine. And this is important because it creates the possibility of human beings being forgiven. Because Jesus is fully God, it means that He could pay for sins once for all. But because He's human, it means that it it can be applied to you and me. His divinity means that He provides a sufficient sacrifice. His humanity means that it is efficacious for human beings who would believe in Jesus. His divinity means that once and for all, He can pay atonement for sins. His humanity means that He becomes a personal Savior who can apply His atonement to human beings. And therefore, He not only identifies with them, He also can redeem them. The virgin birth means that Jesus can live a sinless life, that He will die undeservedly on the cross. He'll bear the sins for all who believe in Him, and He'll create the possibility for sinners being able to be forgiven. What happens here is the virgin birth breaks the silence of 400 years and ushers in the redemptive plan of God where Jesus now becomes sin, even though He knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. So in former times, in the Old Testament, when the temple was built, when the tabernacle was there, God's overshadowing presence would be marked by a cloud or smoke or fire. But this time, His glory and His power come in the overshadowing presence of a young woman and a baby. It's stunning. It is this humble birth of this baby who will bring permanent redemption and peace. So that's... That's why the virgin birth is really important. Let let me give you, there's a bunch of messages that are in this thing, but let me give you just four. Here's the first one. Verse 37. After the angel says a bunch of other things, he then says this. For nothing will be impossible with God. The virgin birth declares boldly and loudly something that we need to get into our understanding that the word impossible is not in God's vocabulary. The virgin birth declares that there is no limits to God. Nothing surprises Him. Nothing hinders Him. Nothing can stop Him. He never runs out of resources. He never lacks energy. He never runs out of solutions. He's never late. And He never goes, oh, what should we do about this? Nothing that's happened in your life in 2010 has caught God by surprise. And nothing that will happen in 2011 will be outside of His plan for your life. Everything that happens, everything that takes place, all of it is orchestrated by a God who's both loving and powerful and good, who never lacks anything, and who doesn't know how to even live in a world that says, there's something that I cannot do. That world doesn't even exist. The word nothing is not even in God's vocabulary. Nothing is impossible for God, rather, is not in his vocabulary. Two of the most hopeful words in all of the Bible are these two words when they are put together, but God. 
So hopeful. Listen to Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's depressing, isn't it? And that's, that's who you were. That's who you are. That's, that's the world in which you live. And then verse 4 comes with an ocean wave of grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace have you been saved. Meaning, even while you were still sinning, God reached into your world and found you. He didn't clean you up first so you could receive His grace. He found you as a mess with all of your sin. And He he didn't just come and woo you. He came and conquered you so you could see the reality of who you were. That's why it says, for by grace are you saved. And then it goes on and it says this, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that He can make much of you and elevate your self-esteem and make you think how worthwhile you are and how wonderful you are and so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. Guess what? You're a grace mirror. You're you're there, and yes, you're full of worth, and you're full of divine glory that God has bestowed upon you, but at the end of the day, what you're really about is about reflection. It's about, in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Nobody's a catch. No one's at the top of the food chain. We're all wicked, horrible sinners who have one confession in life. God found me as a sinner. He cleaned me up and He saved me. And without Him, I have no hope. So just remember your son who's running away from God and you wonder how in the world could he ever be brought back but God. you got a marriage that's in shambles and you wonder how in the world is ever going to turn around but God. The word impossible is not in God's vocabulary. And if you want a great example of that, just look at the virgin birth. Number two. Listen, the plan of God often involves surprising and scandalous solutions. The plan of God often involves surprising and scandalous solutions. I can't get my clicker to work, folks. Come on, come on, come on. But God. (laughs) The plan of God often involves surprising and scandalous solutions. Just remember that, won't you? God chooses Mary... And he puts a child in her womb, and she's going to live the next number of her months with people looking at her going, mm-hmm. How'd this happen? Well, God came to me in an angel, and he put this baby in my womb. I'm like, yeah, right, that's a good one. Nice try, nice try. And, and she's, she's going to live under, but that is what happened. And she's going to live under this scandal. And yet this is what God has done. Just mark it down. This is what God often does. Isn't the cross a scandal? 
How could you believe in someone who's been killed by the Romans, hung on a cross? And here's what God does. He specializes in redemptive acts that are stunning and surprising. And then he invites us to join him in the scandalous walk of grace. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 12 says this, For Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through Him. Then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And when do you acknowledge His name? When you go outside the camp and you bear reproach. You know when you need this verse? You know you need this verse when you go to your Uncle Bob's for Christmas. And he's not a believer. And you're in this environment with all your family, and you're one of the few people that really believe in Jesus, and you're like, I'm an alien in my own house. And these people don't understand me. And then you start talking about the most important thing in the whole wide world, which is your relationship with Christ, and they look at you like you're crazy, or they mock it, and you leave this home. What goes through your brain? It goes through your brain. This is my earthly home. This is my real home. These are my people, but they're not my real people. This is the city that I live in, but this isn't the ultimate city. It is that you gladly bear the reproach of Christ because you go out with Him outside the city. It is what Mary did, and it is what countless people do. They, they, they bear the surprising, scandalous solutions that God invites them to be a part of. You, you can't be a follower of Jesus and not endure some level of reproach. It's part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. And you do it with joy. Here's why. Because of the eclipsing beauty of who Christ is. The reproach that you endure is so minuscule compared to the glory of who He is. That's why you have to know Jesus. Or the reproach will cause you to go, Ah, I didn't sign up for this and you're out of here. You have to know Jesus. Third, the favor of God is unmerited, overwhelming, and it compels obedience. I love what Mary says at the end. She says here, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. Don't you want to live like that? I'm not just telling you to be like Mary. I'm saying that Mary lived like this because she understood the unmerited favor of God. And here's the thing. Rules won't work. Guilt won't work. Um, pressure of other people won't work. What really works to motivate obedience is understanding the beauty of unmerited favor. You want to teach your kids to love Jesus and follow in the rest of their life? Then hold up the beauty of unmerited favor. Bring them back to the cross over and over and over and help them to know that we are a home of people who are horrible sinners, but we know a wonderful Savior. And therefore, by embracing this unmerited favor, it compels God-honoring obedience. It destroys boasting. How are you going to boast? How in the world can you boast when everything you have, you have received? In spite of who you are. So when you open all the Christmas presents and you enjoy this holiday season and you see your little clan and you feel like, man, it's like the Waltons here. You know, you just like, it's like, it's like family nirvana. And when you see this and it's all beautiful and you got stockings and the Christmas music is going, Amy Grant singing in the background, you know, and you got all this stuff going on. I just want you to remember that at the end of the day, everything you have, you've received. And here's the last one. Listen to me very carefully. The silence of God is not the absence of God. 
400 years of silence, and the virgin birth enters into the history of human beings. And God shatters the silence with the virgin birth. And I'm sure that the people of Israel felt like the silence of God meant that he had left them. But he hadn't. Don't fall into the trap of the enemy by thinking, because I'm in a silent season, or as I've called it before, the dark side of God's will, the moments that we all face, these confusing moments when it seems as though your plan isn't clear, it's not obvious what's going on, I don't understand. Just remember that God has always worked through those seasons, and you were just on the cusp, the very edge, of when God was going to intervene. I wouldn't be here today in this church without a dark season of my life. The reason I'm here is because of a man named Dr. Jim Greer who connected me to this ministry. And the only reason I know Jim Greer is because I went to a school in in, in seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But the only reason I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan was because a few months earlier I had been in Ghana, West Africa, on our way to the mission field. And God closed that door, came back in New York City, called my wife. And I said, I don't know what in the world is going on, but God has closed this door. We are on our way to Dallas, Texas. And instead we said, you know what, let's spend six months in Grand Rapids and just heal for a while. And that's when I met Jim Greer. And that's how I ended up here. So without the dark side of the will of God, guess what? I'm not here. And that's a beautiful thing to consider when you're on the other side, but it's also a really important thing to remember when you're in the middle of the dark side of the will of God, that eventually it comes around and God's plan will always be clear, but not always in this lifetime. And in the midst of a dark season or a silent season, we need to simply say, God, you have not abandoned me. So listen, Christmas for 2010 may be a hard one for some of you. It may be the first Christmas with a loved one who's not at the table. For others of you, it may be a year again without a little one at the table. It may be the first Christmas that you're there all by yourself. The first year when your parents aren't in the same room. And you're like, i got to go to two different houses for Christmas? What is this? It may be this is the kind of Christmas that you are spending it with a loved one and you think, this this could be the last one. Or it may be a Christmas that seems so uncertain because your future is just so unclear. And so you're worshiping and you're having a great time, but inside there's this nagging thing of, I don't know what's going to happen next year. And to those of you who are in this position, I just want you to look at the virgin birth and be reminded that one of God's greatest and most defining acts came when many people gave up. You see, there are many messages in the virgin birth, but for some of you, it's this one that I want you to hear. Listen to me. I know God is silent, but he has a plan, and you're just between the testaments right now. So take heart. God isn't absent. He may be silent, but he's not AWOL. And the virgin birth tells us that God is not absent, and it tells us that loud and clear, even after 400 years of silence. God hasn't left you. He's right there. He's right there. Lord Jesus, thank you that One of the essence of your presence with us is the fact that you understand what it's like to be in our world because you became human. And I pray today that in understanding you'd pour out grace to hurting people today who 
just need to hear that you are not absent. And I pray today that you would just remind them that although you are silent, you are still in control. And this is a season to wait and to trust. Father, for those who are still trying to figure out the claims of your word and what it means to be a follower of yours, I pray that today they might see you in a whole new light and in seeing you might believe and return from their sin and come to you, O Christ, for their forgiveness. Lord Jesus, thank you that in your birth you say so many things. And we just want to say to you that we trust you and believe that even when you're silent, you still have a plan. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.